Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that is probably, probably the president of the Dumb Mug Club. And Dustin might be the vice president or the co-president, or maybe he's the first lady, but man, with as people who have been thrifting for decades, we sure do have a lot of dumb mugs in this house. <laughs> if you know you know. I'm your host, Amanda. This week's episode is part one of a three, yes, one, two, three episode series examining the ethics of secondhand resale. If you've spent any time on Instagram or social media in the past year or so, you've certainly seen this topic up for extremely heated debate over and over again. Fortunately, I am not in this alone for tackling this massive topic, I'll be accompanied by the knowledgeable and highly organized and clothes horse all-star, Alex of St. Evans. Most recently, this controversy about resale exploded out of social media into the rest of the internet when secondhand seller Jack, who goes by J.B. Wells 2 on TikTok, became the focus of internet ire. She is a reseller who posts try-on videos of items that she'll be listing for resale later. Nothing nothing shocking here, nothing too controversial. And social media just kind of exploded on her, comparing her to a landlord. Yes, that really happened in, in 2023. Landlord is a pretty brutal insult. Uh, She was compared to scalpers. She was accused of making the lives of poor people even harder and just generally being a monster. The word greedy was thrown out there quite a bit too. If you're unfamiliar with this story or need a refresher, I'll I'll share a link to catch up in the show notes. I don't want to talk about it too much further because, well, we're going to be talking about this topic for many hours for the next three weeks. So, you know, Go read that article and get caught up. But my immediate response to this controversy, which naturally I was sent videos and think pieces about this by approximately 50% of the people who follow Close Horse. I definitely got a lot. I got a lot of this sent my way. My first response was, why do we tend to turn on one another rather than the larger systems and societal norms that are truly responsible People not being able to afford clothing is a large economic situation that is the result of our governments failing us time and time again, while allowing the wealthy to accumulate more and more wealth as the rest of us fall behind. The lack of so-called good clothes, or so it seems, at the thrift stores are the direct result of a shitty industry that makes shitty clothing because it prioritizes profits over everything else, including its customers. The list of bad systems is much longer than what I've just shared with you, and it would take me probably a full hour to walk you through them all, but we will be touching on all of them over the next three episodes. The moral of all of this is this. There are no villains in this situation, except for wealth inequality, Bad systems like student loan debt, so predatory. In fact, predatory credit cards and other lenders, let's add that to the list. And just companies prioritizing profits over people and planet. Everyone involved in this controversy is just another person trying to get by and feel okay 
in a world that makes it really hard to get by and feel okay. I've been thinking about doing an episode about this topic for a very long time. This is a complicated topic that requires far more nuance than anyone can achieve in an Instagram carousel or a TikTok clip. We've already touched on some of the arguments and aspects of resale here on Close Horse in the past, like the volume of product heading to thrift stores overseas and landfills each year, what it's like to work in a thrift store, the business model of the Goodwill and other thrift store chains, and the causes of rising prices at thrift stores. But these topics have been scattered across other episodes over the close to three years that Close Horse has been around. So I'd been thinking for quite a while about putting together a more comprehensive view of all of it for new listeners or for those those of you who want to send others to one place for this information. But honestly, I was afraid. Every time I post about shopping secondhand, the privilege of access to secondhand clothing, the truths about the thrift industry, well, I get bombarded with hate messages and shitty comments for weeks. When someone trolly doesn't get an immediate response, they continue to harass me for days until I finally block them. People fight in the comments, which is not dissimilar to coming over to my house to squabble with one another in my living room. Why? Because I have to witness the whole thing and it only exacerbates my anxiety. I am a very empathetic person, if you haven't picked up already. And seeing people argue around me is really distressing. This is just a lot of chaos and stress. Just for talking about secondhand clothing, of all things, right? So I kept putting off an episode about all of this. I was just like, I'm not ready. But in February, when all of this stuff was hitting a fevered pitch on TikTok and Instagram, Alex of St. Evans approached me about working on something like this together. And I couldn't say no to her. I knew she was the right partner for this. We wanted to ensure that we were presenting all sides of the issue. So I did a series of posts on Instagram asking for submissions. The bad news is that the comment section disintegrated into a mosh pit by day three, and late on a Saturday night, I had to turn off comments on all of the posts. But the good news is that I received literally hundreds of thoughtful, insightful emails and audio messages. It was a lot of work to get through all of them, but I read and listened to everyone multiple times. You will find many of those thoughts throughout these three episodes. As I explained in the instructions in these posts, I only included messages received via email. So if you had a comment or a DM and don't hear it, that's why. I found that transferring information from Instagram to the podcast has an added layer of labor for me because I have to reach out to each commenter individually to get their names, their pronouns, and consent to participate in the podcast. And when you're dealing with more than 500 comments per post, that's what was happening on these resale posts. It's just way too much. Remember, I work a very demanding full-time job to support myself and make Clothes Horse possible. And maybe someday Clothes Horse will make enough money to pay myself and an assistant. And then we'll be able to do all kinds of stuff like comb through hundreds of Instagram comments. In this three-episode series, we will be examining the five major arguments thrown out there to argue for the unethical nature of secondhand resale. Number one, thrift stores are designed to be a resource for low-income people. Number two, 
resellers are making tons of money from taking things that should be for low-income people. Number three, resellers are taking all of the good stuff. That's in quotes. Number four, resellers are responsible for rising prices at thrift stores. And number five, resellers misrepresent what they're selling, list things at wildly inflated prices, and overall behave miserably both online and in person. I'll just go ahead and admit that I am referring to these five arguments as myths throughout the episodes as we will be actively debunking them while also digging into the incredibly complex nuance within each of these issues. Why do I call them myths? Because after many, many hours of research and reading regarding each of these, I can say that they are largely myths or at the very least oversimplification of much more complex situations. And these issues encompass many other dark realities of living in late stage capitalism. Why aren't people being paid a living wage? Why is housing so unaffordable? Why is healthcare a luxury here in the U.S.? Why must education be a financial burden for the rest of our lives? Why do so many of us have to work multiple jobs just to survive? Why is the fashion industry making billions churning out clothes that are so low quality, no one wants to wear them for very long or buy them secondhand? And that's just the beginning of the issues we will be encountering along the way. This is a very complex conversation. In this episode, we will be focusing on the first two myths. Thrift stores are designed to be a resource for low-income people, and resellers are making tons of money from taking things that should be for low-income people. The intro segment for this episode will focus on the reality that many people have shifted their behavior from overconsuming fast fashion to overconsuming secondhand clothing. Also not a good thing. The other myths on this list will be shared in the following episodes. I'm repeating that again. This is a three-part series because there was some confusion during the laundry episodes with listeners missing the message that it was a multi-episode series and sending me emails that, frankly, were really hurtful and frustrating, telling me what a disastrous job I had done by missing so many things. This would be after they only listened to one of the episodes. So I'm trying to do a better job of reiterating when a topic will be spread across several episodes. This will be a three-part journey. There's just too much to touch here. None of these ideas are as simple or black and white as they appear on social media. There's a lot to break down, a lot to research, a lot to contemplate. Now, there are going to be some ground rules for the next three weeks as we tackle this very huge subject. For one, I will be turning off comments on all Instagram posts about this topic. This is not to prevent conversations, but rather to preserve my mental health. I will also be turning off DMs for the same reason. If you want to share your opinion and additional thoughts on the subjects we cover in each episode, please feel free to email me, whether it's a typed out message or an audio recording. My email address is amanda at closehorse.world. And of course, that's going to be in the show notes. So if you have some additional thoughts to add, send them my way. However, please do not send me an email saying you could have done a better job or I'm disappointed that you didn't cover XYZ until 
we have finished the three episodes because they are extremely comprehensive. And if at that point we miss something, I definitely want to hear from you. If there's enough that we've missed, perhaps this can turn into a four-parter rather than a three-parter. I want you all to remember, I'm a person, a person who already works really hard to cope with my mental and physical health. Please be considerate of that, and please observe the same level of consideration for Alex. I know that these topics feel huge, but we can't let that make us forget that we are all people doing the best we can in a pretty stressful, pretty scary, definitely frustrating world. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this and for being patient as we go through all of this. Let's take a moment to mention a new sponsor of Clothes Horse, North American Herb and Spice. A few weeks ago, I was sick from one of the wild viruses wreaking havoc on all of us this winter and early spring. You all know because I told you on Instagram. And while illnesses like colds and flus tend to linger with me for a really long time, turning into a sinus infection, bronchitis, or some other secondary infection that slows me down for weeks and makes it hard to make close horse, this time I made a fast recovery. And I think North American Herb and Spices Oregano P73 oil had a lot to do with that. I'm actually a regular user of herbal and natural remedies because I believe in the power of plants. And I've got a lot of rad smart herbalists in my life. I'm very lucky. I've actually been a big believer in oregano oil for upper respiratory infections and other minor illnesses since a friend introduced me to it about, I don't know, 10 years ago. Fun fact, it was actually a vendor that I worked with at my first buying job. I just add two drops to a little bit of water and chug it first thing in the morning. It's also great when mixed with a hot ginger and cayenne tea. So awesome for a sore throat. I've also used it to treat minor skin infections and bug bites, which I get a lot of, especially here in Texas. And North American Urban Spice has the highest quality oregano oil I have ever used. Oregano P73 is the original, truly wild, organic oregano oil that is produced by old-fashioned old-fashioned steam distillation. It is the only unprocessed, full-spectrum wild oregano oil available, and it is chemical and GMO-free. North American Urban Spice is a true American success story. Founded in a basement and told by skeptics that it could not be done, Judy K. Gray defied the odds and built a renowned and trusted brand. She believed that there had to be a better way to heal the world and that the answer lay in finding the finest ingredients especially from the wild, and formulating them into unique products. Judy was the first to recognize the unique healing powers of P73 oregano oil and create formulations that countless consumers have used over the last 30 years. If you're interested in trying oregano P73 or any of North American Herb and Spice's other products, Go check out NorthAmericanHerbAndSpice.com. They offer a wide variety of high-quality products made from ingredients sustainably sourced from around the world. I'll definitely be adding their Oregasin throat spray to my next order. And guess what? I have a special offer just for Clothes Horse listeners. Get 25% off your order with the promo code CLOTHESHORSE25. That's CLOTHESHORSE25, and I'll share that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, well, let's get this series rolling with some very distressing facts about textile waste and clothing consumption in 2023. On average, each American buys 70 new articles of clothing each year. The numbers for the UK and Canada, they're pretty much the same. And I'm talking brand new, never worn by anyone else clothing, not new to you, right? Brand new, fresh out of the factory. If you're shocked by that and you're saying, I haven't worn any new clothes since five years ago, I'm still wearing the clothes I I bought in high school, I only thrift, I sew all my own clothes, then I want you to realize, once again, that this is an average. So if you bought zero clothes last year, you zero brand new clothes, someone else bought 140 new garments. No, that doesn't include socks, and especially does not include individual socks. Um, if you and your partner haven't bought new clothes in a year, then that means to balance the two of you out, there might be someone out there who bought 210 articles of clothing. And I'm here to tell you, 70 happens really, really easily. And I will say that as someone who has no shame in saying, listen, I worked in the fashion industry my whole adult life up until a few years ago. And my goal was to get people to buy as much stuff as possible. That's how I got paid by my job, basically, right? And if they didn't buy as much stuff, then I might lose my job or not get a raise or a promotion or, you know, get laid off, what have you. I have definitely been a person in the past who bought 70 new garments in a year, possibly even more. I don't know because I didn't keep track. That's how much I was buying. I had to always be wearing the newest, freshest thing, as a buyer in the fashion industry. And I have seen how easy it is to buy way too many clothes. There's no shame in realizing that and making that change. Americans also on average throw away 70 pounds of textiles each year. That's not just clothes. It can be blankets, towels, other cloth you have around your house. I don't know what else that would be. Curtains, you name it. The EPA estimates that 85% of textiles produced each year end up in the landfill. And globally, 92 million metric tons of textile waste are produced every year. What does that mean to you, right? Especially if you don't know what a metric ton is. How about this? That's the equivalent of a garbage truck full of textiles going to the landfill, dumping it out into the landfill, every second of every day. 60% of new clothing ends up in the landfill or incinerator within the same year it was made. That's 60 billion garments each year. If we think about the average American, that's 70 new articles of clothing each year being bought. What that statistic says, that 60% of it ending up in the landfill the same year, that's saying that 42 out of 70 of those items bought are going to the landfill before the year is up. We toss 85% of our unwanted clothing in the trash, and we donate the remaining 15% to charities, thrift stores, those store take-back programs, or textile recycling bins. All of these clothes kind of end up in the same system, no matter where they started. Only 10% of the clothes donated to thrift stores are actually purchased from the thrift store. That means that of the 70 average new items bought each year by Americans, only one, a single item is bought from the thrift store. 
The rest of it is sold off to textile recycling companies. To be clear, and I've been talking about this on Instagram this week, only 1% of textiles are ever truly recycled into new fabric, despite that term, textile recycling companies. While these textile recycling companies aren't exactly recycling textiles, it is their goal to extract every last bit of profit out of our unwanted clothing. Basically, the goal is to send the, as little as possible to landfill because there's no money in that. And in fact, you're paying to truck it away. But certainly stuff ends up there. Clothing is sorted and graded by quality, and some of it is shredded and downcycled. Like I said, some of it goes to the landfill. The balance is bailed up by type and grade. Some of it is resold here in the United States to other thrift stores that buy their inventory or to vintage sellers who are going to the rag houses, uh, retailers like Urban Outfitters buy a buy the bale to sell on their website and in their stores. Um, the rest of it is shipped around the world. And each year, two to four million tons of secondhand clothing are being shipped from the global north to the global south. And the U.S. is the biggest exporter of secondhand clothing, followed by the U.K. The more highly graded used clothing, meaning in the best condition, is exported to Central American countries, and the lower-graded clothing, meaning in less good condition, less desirable overall, you see a lot of those like one-off, like Office 5K, field hockey team, bachelorette party t-shirts being thrown in with that lower-graded clothing, that's all shipped to Africa and Asia. You might be saying, Amanda, isn't sending our clothing to other countries a good thing? Um, no, like all caps, hell no. The volume of clothing traveling across the world is massive. Accra, Ghana is receiving 15 million garments each week. That's 780 million garments in a year. And that is just one of the many ports around the world receiving secondhand clothing from the global north. This steady stream of cheap clothing is snuffing out the garment and textile industry in these countries because locally made clothes cannot compete with these prices. Brands are creating low quality clothing that is neither durable nor versatile. Just because we sent it doesn't mean someone can wear it or wants to wear it. We didn't want it, right? Why should someone else want it? About 40% of the clothes that arrive in Accra will never be worn again. Maybe you didn't have a calculator sitting by you, but I sure do. That's 312 million garments just at one port in the many ports around the world that we're sending our unwanted clothing to. 312 million garments that just shipped across the ocean and will never be worn again. Once again, that's just one place receiving these items. We see the environmental and economic impact of this deluge of clothing all over the world. For example, mountains of rotting fast fashion are now found in the Atacama Desert in Chile. Google it. There's literally nowhere else for the people who live there to put them after they arrive and get sorted. The disposal of this unwanted clothing and textiles that we have exported becomes someone else's problem. Others, people who were not involved in any way in our overconsumption, 
are left to face the environmental repercussions of our trash. This is waste colonialism. In 2022, I did a three-part series with the Orr Foundation, an organization focused on trying to mitigate the disaster that these disposed clothes are creating in Ghana. I'll share the link to those episodes in the show notes because if you're new to Clothes Horse, you should listen to those ASAP. The TLDR of it all is that these clothes are creating an environmental disaster in Ghana, overflowing landfills, blowing into waterways, starting fires, and creating these huge tentacles of rotting clothing in the ocean and along the coastline. And it has completely destroyed the domestic textile and clothing industries in Ghana because they will never be able to top the low, low prices of a steady flow of fast fashion coming from us. So go listen to those. They are really wrenching. They are really hard to listen to, but they really solidify for people who maybe weren't completely there yet that one, we need to get maximum wear out of clothes that already exist on this earth, and that means wearing them secondhand. And two, we need to stop buying clothes the way we have been for so many years now. What am I saying with all of this is that we are not running out of clothes. In fact, it is imperative that we get as much wear as possible out of these items. According to the Earth Logic Plan, which we've been talking about a lot this year on Clothes Horse, our planet's future depends on all of us buying 75% less brand new clothing. That means opting for secondhand as often as possible. And that will mean buying from resellers, secondhand shops, thrift stores, and other secondhand shopping options like yard sales, flea markets, etc. Because people need clothes. I get it. I do believe that shopping secondhand and the resellers that are helping many people do that are part of a new, slower, circular economy. But we are still in the early stages and things aren't always going perfectly. You can overconsume secondhand clothing, just like brand new clothing. We cannot use secondhand as a replacement in our overshopping. We need to unpack why we buy stuff to make ourselves feel better, why we feel the need to have so much new stuff in our lives. And then we need to simultaneously buy less and shop secondhand as often as possible. We don't need to buy 70 secondhand clothing items each year either, unless we're going through through some serious life changes that require that. A few weeks ago on Instagram, I posted about breaking the habit of retail therapy, and a commenter talked about how they used to go to H&M or wherever to cheer themselves up after a bad day, but they finally broke the habit and they were feeling victorious, and I was proud of them. That's a hard habit to break. And then another commenter added, you should just Poshmark instead when you need some retail therapy. Um... No, mega, mega face palm here. (laughs) I was like, no, don't say that. I told you that we're going to be including quotes from various members of the community in this episode and in all three episodes. And here's going to be our first, 
Our first submission, this one comes from Mads. Mads says, I know online reselling is beneficial to rural and disabled folks that can't make it into thrift stores. But from a sustainability perspective, I don't see how resellers are helping in the long run when our overconsumption is the main problem we face and they aren't helping with the excess clothing issue. Online shopping, even when secondhand, tends to lead to overconsumption and waste as people overbuy and things may not fit true to size or they don't like it on and aren't able to return it. These clothes end up back in the thrift stores again or thrown away, left in the back of a closet, as many online resellers don't have return policies. Not everyone buying secondhand does it for sustainability reasons. And I I totally agree with that. I think that there are many of us, and I'm going to talk about this, who are kind of using secondhand shopping as a Band-Aid on a larger problem within ourselves, okay? I read a variety of essays and articles about the secondhand shopping industry dating back to the middle of the 20th century. Time and time again, I noticed the same behavioral pattern. The ease of donating one's clothing to the Goodwill or Salvation Army always led to buying more new clothing. Sort of like, not only have I made space in my closet, but I also did a good deed, so I deserve a reward. And in fact, we have seen this cycle of shop, donate, shop again, fueling the fast fashion industry in this century. I worry that knowing that something is secondhand may sort of psychologically encourage us to buy more stuff because we think the impact is less. It's that idea of guilt-free consumption. It has the similar effect of greenwashing campaigns. It lets us think we don't have to make any difficult changes within ourselves while still saving the planet or something. Buying clothes that are new to us, whether they are brand new or secondhand, only reinforces the planned obsolescence of clothing, meaning that feeling that we need a steady stream of new stuff to be happy, successful, attractive, popular. It doesn't teach us to make more thoughtful decisions about what we do buy. And ultimately, what we don't buy is also an important decision, right? Because we skip the things that we don't see ourselves wearing and using for a long time. We don't buy the things that we don't think will last. We skip the stuff that will require a level of care that we can't that we can't commit to. And we recognize the stuff that won't fit into our day-to-day lives. And then we don't buy any of those things. We do buy the things that check all the boxes. Ultimately, overconsumption of secondhand clothes is still overconsumption, and it has an impact. There's all that packaging, the labels and printing, the shipping, the seller taking the package to the post office. All of these things have a carbon footprint. They use energy, right? Even the electricity required to perform all of these transactions and all of these steps, that has an impact as well. Many of us are transitioning our habit of over-shopping away from fast fashion. That's a great step forward, but we're transitioning it into secondhand without really doing the work to cut back on our consumption in the first place. And yeah, considering all of this stuff, really thinking about it, it is work, at least in the beginning, you know, when we're trying to change our behaviors and habits. But over time, it starts to feel very natural. When I'm buying anything, whether that's new or secondhand, I ask myself the following questions. 
Am I buying this because I'm bored, sad, looking for a distraction? Remember, retail therapy isn't actually therapy, even if it makes you feel better for a short period of time. My times of greatest overconsumption of buying way too much stuff, especially clothing, they have happened when I've been in bad relationships, at a bad job, or just struggling with something else that is far too large to be fixed by a new dress. Next, I ask myself, will I wear this often? And will I wear it for years? Can I wear this comfortably and regularly in the climate I live in? Does this fabric or garment work with my own personal concerns? Like, will I be comfortable, itchy, sweaty? If you can say yes to itchy or sweaty, do not buy this because you're not going to wear it. Am I willing to care for this properly, whether it's hand washing, dry cleaning, line drying, ironing, what have you? And lastly, do I love this garment enough to mend and repair it? Asking yourself these questions, at first, it's going to feel weird, but it's going to become very natural to you over time, and it will result in you buying a lot less regretful, impulsive things. Even just slowing that process down of hitting the pay button, it slows down your consumption and makes you buy less long-term. Because if you make yourself wait as you consider these things, you might lose interest by the time you're done walking through these questions. Here's the thing, though. We all need clothes. It's unrealistic to expect people to just stop buying clothes and call it a day. And sometimes we need more clothes than other times, right? If you move to another climate, if you change jobs, if your body changes sizes, if you change as a person, the availability of secondhand resale allows us to get the clothes we need without creating new clothes. And that's amazing. I'm glad that more people have more access to secondhand clothing than any previous time in history. I'm glad that others are able to pay their bills or at least part of them by sourcing, repairing, cleaning, listing, and selling these items to people who want and need them. It's a great alternative to placing a big old Zara order. These people are doing an incredible service for all of us that I am happy to pay a little bit of extra money for. But I also don't buy a ton of clothes, period. I thrift a few times each month, but I rarely buy clothing. Why? Because I don't need it. I, like all of you, have been working really hard to change my behavior around shopping and consumption. And I don't want to be one of those Americans who buys 70 items each year. Won't you join me? Okay, are you ready to get into it with Alex? Let's get started. All right, Alex, do you want to remind everybody of who you are? I mean, you are a regular around here. You are a fan favorite. But just in case we have some new people or people who are bad at remembering names, which I am one of those people, even though I do know who you are. (laughs) I am also very bad with names, so that is very fair. Um, (laughs) My name is Alex. I am the owner of the vintage brand St. Evans. I have been very lucky to have been invited on Close Horse multiple times now to chat with you, Amanda. It's always such a pleasure to be on. Um, Yeah, I am on Instagram as where underscore St. Evans. I am also on TikTok now, so you guys can find me over there at 
ST underscore evens. Um, and then I have my website that I sell on. And yeah, I'm super excited to be having this convo with you. Yeah. So today we're having a pretty intense convo. Um, it was something that I had been thinking about for quite a while. And I, to be really honest, was like, I don't know if I'm ready to do this on my own. And I was having a hard time seeing the path forward. But then you reached out to me and you said, listen, would you be interested in talking about this on Clothes Horse? So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about like what motivated you to say, hey, we need to have a really large public conversation about the view of secondhand and resellers right now? Yeah. So, um, you know, as I'm sure most people have seen it, this is an ongoing discourse that kind of <sighs> pops up online. I feel yeah. like there will be like a big burst of conversation around it. It'll show up on Instagram. It'll show up on TikTok. And then, you know, it kind of goes away, but it keeps coming back. And mm-hmm. I feel like this most recent wave, I have just seen so much misinformation. And particularly, I have been seeing a lot of this on TikTok. And I have to say I'm a big fan of the platform like as a whole I am Mm -hmm. one of those people in their 30s that is super (laughs) on board and spends a lot of time on there um I think that it has been really great for like spreading information connecting people I personally have learned so much from other creators on that app however it is a very restrictive platform in a lot of ways because um I know that they've extended the video length now but the videos are still relatively short Mm -hmm. um the comments are also very short you cannot leave a long comment on anything so I feel like that really hinders discourse and Mm -hmm. I understand you know why they would have the platform set up that way however when it comes to really big topics like this There is so much to talk about and there are so many facets of this conversation that I found that there was just people were arguing or people would make a video or a post trying to discuss one point and then people would kind of derail the conversation about a different Mm -hmm. point entirely. And this is something that I'm personally really passionate about both as a seller and just a buyer, someone who cares about sustainability and wants to promote thrifting for everybody. And I kept trying to think of ways that I could enter the conversation in a productive way. So I kind of started to sit down and just like make notes of things that I was thinking of and different parts of the conversation that I didn't necessarily see people addressing. And I was like, there's so much to say here. Like, where do I start? Similarly, how you felt. Um, It's a very overwhelming topic and, (laughs) you know, I really wanted to make sure that I was figuring out a way to talk about it in a way that was very thorough and effective and helpful for people. And I was like, you know what? I feel like talking about this with Amanda would be the perfect way (laughs) to do it. (laughs) Yeah, no. I mean, honestly, like, I don't want to brag about us, but we are really the perfect pair of people to take this on because we are the sorts who will let no stone be unturned (laughs) in trying to get to the bottom of something. And so this was definitely a massive undertaking. Um, I posted about it on social media. You know, we really wanted to get as many different views, stories, experiences as we could. And hundreds of messages came my way. It is something that is on a lot of people's minds. Mm-hmm. Um, we also saw some things getting a little heated in the comments section on some of the Instagram posts, which makes me a little nervous for sure. But I also think that there is so much emotion involved in the state of secondhand right now 
that I understand that feeling because there are so many things to be upset about right now, to be worried about right now, just in general, Mm -hmm. that sometimes you just have to kind of latch onto something to, I don't know, to get your emotions in order, sort of. And I think in this one, there is a lot of misinformation involved. There is a lot of emotion involved. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of sexism. I could go on and on. But we're going to get to the bottom of what is really happening in the state of secondhand right now, the supply of secondhand, the pricing of secondhand, because there is not a day that goes by that someone doesn't DM me to complain about thrift store prices. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm excited to just debunk what's going on with thrift store prices all at once. Yeah, (laughs) So that I don't have to repeat myself every day. Yeah, but definitely a big undertaking that I would say, you know, the average episode of Close Wars probably takes eight to 10 hours of research and writing and prep to get together before we even record or edit. This was substantially longer. I mean, this was like many nights in a row of me just sitting in my computer from like the moment I got home from work until it was time to go to bed, pulling all this together. Yes. Um, it's so funny because I know that people listening cannot see that we have multiple Google Docs in front of us, <laughs> that we have lots and lots of notes and lots of, you know, statistics and information like outlined um, just to make sure that we're doing this like in the best way possible. And before we do get into this conversation, I did actually just want to thank you. Um, I know that by putting yourself out there with Clothes Horse and attaching your name to it, um, it's it's your project. You don't have a team. And so you are the person that's receiving the brunt of the <laughs> feedback and, you know, unfortunately, the backlash. And I know that you've said you've received, you know, so many responses, some of them not being positive. Um, and <laughs> listen, I can imagine that that's difficult for you. Um, I know this is something you're really passionate about, but like it sucks when people are mean to you and And I just really appreciate everything that you've done. And I think a lot of your listeners really appreciate it. And yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for like putting yourself out there in that way. I know that it can be difficult to do. Thank you, Alex. You know, that is a lot of the labor that goes kind of unseen. And that really, that really means a lot to me that you, that you just said that right here in front of everyone who's listening. You are very appreciated. So thank you. So here, here's something I will tell you. When it came to Facebook, not Facebook, why am I talking about Facebook? (laughs) I don't even look at Facebook. The Instagram comments that I received in the comments section in the DMs. Yes. We got, there was some negative, sometimes just like really volatile stuff. Yeah. But I will tell you, the vast majority of the emails and audio messages I received were really positive or just like really realistic or concerned, but also positive or encouraging but also worried and just such a different tone and just so much nuance coming my direction from so many people, which I I just really loved. And, you know, I know that taking the time to write down your thoughts or even take it to the next level and record yourself sharing those thoughts is a lot of work. And so I know all the people who contributed really care about this. Yeah, absolutely. Really care about this issue. So I'm just so grateful for how much work the entire community put into this. So should we get down to business here? Let's uh, let's get into it. <laughs> okay. So I was telling you before we started recording that I had this, I don't know, revelation in my early 20s where I was like, I don't know if I can be an artist or succeed as an artist because everything that has ever happened has already happened and every idea has already 
been ideated and like what is left to do, which is perhaps like so art school of me. <laughs> but I think it's a common feeling that a lot of us get, definitely, especially creative people. Yes. Um, but I remember when I was a teenager and I would be like, you know, I don't know, I asked someone out and they said no. And I was really crushed about it and be like moping around all day. You know, my grandma would say, you know, the thing is, this has been happening to people for centuries. It'll be okay, right? <laughs> and, you know, I was, anytime I'm like seeing a big issue out in the world or a trend, honestly, I start to, I like to dig into like, this trend has probably happened before. Yeah. This controversy has probably happened before because I don't know what it is about us humans, but we're just like in a, a loop kind of. Oh, yes. Right? Everything Forever. is a cycle. Right. Okay. So I wondered, was a lot of the opinion or you know, just statements we hear out there about thrifting, about secondhand, about reselling, was this perhaps something that had already happened before? Um. Like, you know, let's think about some of the arguments we hear out there that there are not is not enough secondhand stuff to go around, that the resellers are taking all of the good stuff, that stuff is more expensive because of the resellers, you know, on and on and on, right? Like mm-hmm. these are these are the things that we hear. Um, and I just had like kind of wondered, you know, has this happened before? And so I went on such a deep dig. I mean, I'm this was one of those moments where I was very grateful that I gifted myself a New York Times subscription because I was able to get into all their archives and just read article after article. So I want to get started with an article from the New York Times called Rags to Riches. And I'm going to read you a quote from an actual thrift store owner. All right. Okay. We used to buy dresses for 50 cents and overcoats for $2. Then everybody found out about it. Every hippie who finally decided he had to support himself went into the secondhand clothing business. It was natural for them, but it was the beginning of the end for me. When is this article from? Oh, it's from 1978. Yep. Yep. Uh, And it tapped into a growing concern of the late 70s, the gentrification of thrifting. Yeah, not new. (laughs) Yeah, According to the New York Times that year, the middle class started haunting thrift shops, resale stores, and vintage clothing boutiques in the early 1970s. Since then, people in the business say prices have quadrupled. So we start to get that like, oh, it's people who don't need to thrift who are taking the good stuff, right? I mean, this is just exactly the same conversation we're having right now. I know. Seriously, humans are just in this loop. I don't know what's going (laughs) on. What is time? I don't even know. Um, There was also at this point allegedly – a shortage of merchandise because not only were middle-class families shopping at thrift stores, they were also feeling the pinch of inflation. So rather than donating their unwanted items, which they had done for decades at this point, they were actually selling the stuff on their own, whether it was at flea markets, yard sales, what have you, to get some extra cash, which they needed. Mm -hmm. And this reminded me so much of right now, too. Yeah. I mean, you can definitely see that reflected now in the prevalence of resale, how like Mm -hmm. even people who aren't selling professionally have more, you know, access to being able to do it just casually with their own stuff. Mm -hmm. And I also find it interesting that this 1970s conversation is in line with an economic downturn. They're talking about inflation. I don't think it's Mm -hmm. a coincidence that this is cropping back up now when we're seeing similar economic patterns. Totally. I, back in 2020, when I certainly had an extra amount of time to reflect on things, I had this revelation one day that 
basically starting around the late oddies, early like 2020, we were actually starting to find ourselves in the late 70s again, um, just culturally. Um, and especially in terms of like, kind of like, you know, the economic situation we were in, uh, where people were feeling the pinch, like joblessness, um, and just even, you know, strangely enough, from like an aesthetic perspective. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, I was fascinated by that, that we would simultaneously be really into 70s fashion while also living all of the challenges of the 70s. Yeah, it's very interesting. Very interesting. So at the same time, you know, so we have, let's like re recap where we are. It's 1978. Uh, more and more middle-class people are using thrift stores. Um, at the same time, they don't have money to just donate their stuff like they have been. So they're selling it as well to get extra cash. At the same time, young people were getting really into secondhand clothing, mm -hmm. particularly those involved in the counterculture who were feeling disenchanted with the consumerism of American culture. Again, sounds very familiar. Odds are high that if you're listening to Clothes Horse, you are part of a countercultural movement at this point, right? Yeah. So this combination of secondhand clothing being trendy and rising inflation had department stores. Now, this is interesting. you got to remember, department stores, not so meaningful to us now. But in the 70s, we're like where most people bought their stuff. That They were the backbone of yeah. retail during that time. Yeah. They were the most important part of the mall if the mall existed in your town. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't care about the other little stores. It's like the inverse now, right? So department stores were like, hmm, okay, so people have less money. Secondhand clothing is kind of trendy, more acceptable, especially for middle-class consumers. Why don't we start having departments in our stores that are secondhand clothing? Mm -hmm. So this was wildly successful. Stores were selling out all over the place. And basically, the department stores had to discontinue selling secondhand clothing not because it wasn't wildly successful, because it was, because they couldn't get enough inventory. Interesting. There just wasn't enough to go around. And, you know, to be fair, we're going to get into this later, but like the modern thrift store sort of infrastructure is all about logistics. It's like primarily moving stuff around at this point. Yeah. And I would suspect that, I mean, department stores don't matter in the same way right now, but like if, if this happened now, department stores wouldn't run out of inventory. And yeah. we do see a little bit of that. I know... I don't know if this is still going on, but it's in the early days of the pandemic or like 2019, like ThreadUp was in Macy's and I think Nordstrom was trying to do something with them. And it was this buzzy thing that department stores were trying to get into, but just department stores aren't relevant in the same way. I mean, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that the only like facets of department stores that are thriving is like the discount and off, yeah. you know, like Nordstrom Rack, um, mm -hmm. I think is actually like doing decent. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's actually what's keeping a lot of the department stores afloat now. It totally is because Macy's has their like backstage or something mm -hmm. like that. And they've actually created, they've converted entire Macy's stores just into outlets for Macy's. Very and interesting. And that's been really beneficial for them. Yeah. Yeah. And so they didn't, they ran out of secondhand clothing. Also, it's important to remember that there were we weren't over-consuming. And when I say we, I guess the people of the 70s, but if we are in a time loop, perhaps it was us as well. Let's get like full matrix here. But people back then weren't buying and disposing of clothing at the rate that we are now. So running out of inventory was more of a possibility. Right. The 1970s was also pre-fast fashion. 
Um, it was pre like mass, um, mm-hmm. you know, you, they weren't mass producing garments in the same way back then. So there were much more limited runs of the things that were available to purchase and clothing was also just a lot more expensive. Um, it really doesn't feel like it's been that long since the seventies, but like the average cost of an article of clothing was way higher back then to buy mm-hmm. new. So people just, yeah, you, it was like not a thing to shop the way that we shop now. Cause it just wasn't possible for people. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. So here's the thing. And this also reminds me of something we're going to touch on later. Thrift stores who are after all, and we're going to reiterate this many, many times. Mm-hmm. They are businesses. Yep. They are businesses first everything else second. Yep. Even back then in the 70s, um, they were like, how do we keep our businesses growing when we have more competition? We have vintage stores popping up. We have people selling at flea markets. We have department stores getting in on the action. How would they, how would they continue to grow and bring in more and more customers? Um, even back then, and it was not this era of overconsumption that we're in right now, Goodwill and Salvation Army were still receiving far more inventory than they could ever actually sell. So they were selling the excess off to rag pickers who were selling it to vintage stores, smaller secondhand dealers, department stores, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it was a pretty good time to be a rag picker because there was so much stuff to choose from. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But getting back to the thrift stores, they were kind of like, okay, well, we got to be more competitive. We got to create more exciting window displays. We have to get new fixtures. We have to add nicer fitting rooms. We have to do special promos and pull together collections and really get out there and tell people that we're a great place to shop. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, I mean, it's this is happening right now too which we're going to talk about, but the thrift stores are kind of one of the biggest competitors for the best secondhand stuff out there right now. Yeah. So it was a great time to be a rag picker, as I said. But even back then, even when we're like, okay, department stores are getting into the secondhand game, but they can't even get enough inventory to keep these sections open. Even with thrift stores being like, how do we make become more competitive? How do we become more aspirational? All that stuff. Even then, Most of the secondhand clothes that were being donated at that point were being shipped overseas, just like now. Yep. But maybe it was a little bit different than it is now. Harvey Sheffrin, who ran a large rag warehouse in Queens in the 70s, told the New York Times that more than 50% of his secondhand clothing was sold overseas. And it wasn't just to the global south as it is now. Yes, there was stuff going to the global south for sure, but... Here's what Mr. Shuffman, Shuffrin told the New York Times. He said, when he gets a big collection of old clothes from his sources around the country, rag dealers who are less fashion-minded than he is, he sends it to a back-burner market like Amsterdam to see how it does there. If it goes, I start shipping to the Paris flea markets, and usually I have a fashion hit. Then American designers spot it and claim it as their own. Most of the recent so-called fashion innovations have been stolen from Parisians wearing old American clothes. So interesting. So interesting, right? So, you know, okay, lots of people are shopping secondhand. It's trendy. Uh, Middle-class people are in on it now. Still lots of stuff being shipped overseas. But in general, like, we've got this thriving secondhand environment Mm -hmm. at this point. Thrifting remained popular with the hipsters and various subcultures of the 80s. I mean, 
That's basically the theme of Pretty in Pink, and I refuse to admit that it's anything else. It's all about (laughs) taking cool thrifted stuff and turning it into cute outfits. But also, even though we tend to think of the 80s as this time of excess, it was actually where a lot of the economic issues that we struggle with now in 2023, it's when they began. This was the beginning of the decline of the middle class. It was the beginning of wage stagnation, meaning wages not keeping up with cost of living. The Reagan administration cut many programs that were part of the social safety net. And over the nearly decade-long presidency, the minimum wage remained frozen while cost of living increased. It was not a great time financially. This is where we begin to hear about the decline of the middle class. Mm-hmm. From a 1986 New York Times article called Vintage Clothing Gains in Popularity, (laughs) many of those who once rebelled at wearing hand-me-downs and anything outdated are flocking to shops that specialize in vintage clothing. Customers browsing through yesterday's collections are no less diverse in their interests and special needs than the fashions and accessories to which they are drawn. It's so interesting because this is 10 whole years after the first article that you quoted. Yeah. About, yeah. you know, look at it, it's becoming so popular now to shop secondhand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, just imagine how great the vintage shopping in 1986 would have been. Oh, I don't even want to think about it. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Uh, you, you would have been like, ooh, 70s and like put it back on the rack. Anyway. From a 1988 New York Times article, so two years later, about the rise of popularity in thrifting. Once again, why are we in this constant loop? We just talked about this (laughs) 10 years ago, right? The sale of used clothing is becoming a booming business in New Jersey. And in the process, thrift shops are removing the stigma against secondhand wear, giving it an acceptable and even trendy new public image. Shop managers say the popularity of thrift store shopping has diversified to include customers from all socioeconomic levels. Once considered the domain of women seeking fashion at low cost for themselves and their children— the shops are now drawing a significant number of men into the quest for bargains in clothing, furniture, and antiques. Helen Nugent, president of the Junior Leagues of the Oranges and Short Hills, I totally have been to the Junior League shop there, by the way, which sponsors a thrift shop in Milburn, said that buying at thrift shops had become respectable for middle-class shoppers. The stigma has reversed so that people think you are smart if you can save money. It's also a trendy thing to do. 1988, my friends. So interesting. I know. I know. So then we get into the 90s. And so then we get into like when I am a young teenager, well, like a tween and then a young teenager. And I, this is when I discovered thrifting. So my family was poor, but we did not thrift. It was very stigmatized to go thrifting. And instead, we would just buy like really cheap outlet clothes or we would go to a yard sale and it'd be okay. But like my family, when I started thrifting was scandalized, which I thought was really hilarious because we also bought all our groceries from the place where it's like all the dented cans that fell off the back of a truck. So (laughs) I don't, I don't know why we were like drawing the line there, but like to me and my cool friends in, in high school and in college, like this is like thrifting was like where we got all of our clothes. And I think a lot of this was like alternative music. It was grunge. Lots of people want to blame Kurt and Courtney. But there was also a recession happening again, right? Because the economy just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And it like it once again setting the stage for where we are now financially. Mm-hmm. Things weren't as extreme as they are now. But the gap between the 1% and everyone else was widening every year. 
And once again, people were turning even more to secondhand shopping. Um, This is from a New York Times article called Secondhand Clothes Beckon First-Time Buyers. I forgot to put the year in here, but I think it was like around 1992. Okay. Spurred by the recession as well as an interest in recycling. So now we're starting to talk about thrifting as an environmental step you could take, right? right? That's not something that had come up before. And the 90s was definitely the very beginning of like, you know, environmentalism being like a huge, very popular movement. I feel like Earth Day was created in the 90s, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I feel like the recycling boom and all of that stuff was also happening around this time. Totally, totally. So now we have the added layer of not only is it cool, not only is it affordable, not only is it sort of taking a stance against capitalism and consumerism, it's also eco-friendly. Shops are doing a brisk business in affluent suburbs from Greenwich to Westport, which I can say are very affluent. I dated someone who had lived in both Greenwich and Westport, and at one point, one of her neighbors was Martha Stewart. So That sounds about right. Yeah. Any stigma once connected with them is fading for newly cost-conscious shoppers who find they can purchase designer goods for a fraction of their original cost. So then we've got people thrifting more and more in the 90s. I can say that thrifting in the 90s was amazing. Um, Where I grew up in central Pennsylvania, I could take two buses to go to basically like a rag yard in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, And at that point, the rag yard was only the clothes of, you know, elderly people who had either like passed away or had transitioned into, you know, a different living situation and had cleaned out a lot of their stuff. So it was all... 50s, 60s, and 70s all the time. It was a dream time, right? But that was also not that far in the rear view at that point. Right. Right? So in the era of the hipster, a.k.a. the aughts, now we're in this century, we're getting into the fast fashion era, thrifting remained popular. And by then, it was difficult to find true vintage within the city limits. I remember being like, 2005, and I'd be like, why is everything at the thrift store in the 90s? I hate it, right? (laughs) That's how it works, right? Um, There were also more options then. Um, And they might be more expensive than the thrift store, but they were still, in many situations, more affordable than going to, like, Nordstrom or something like that. Like, for example, eBay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you that around 2005, it was very normal to hang out with your hipster friends at your local hipster dive bar drinking really cheap beer, and complain about how eBay sellers were ruining thrift stores, okay? (laughs) So once again, we're just in this, like, cycle. I don't know what is wrong with us. Um, And you could also, there were vintage stores more and more everywhere, consignment shops, which I'm a huge fan of, places like Buffalo Exchange and Crossroads. These things were growing and expanding, You know, one thing I want to call out that I think is really important here is that while no one in my hipster friend group, I'm thinking specifically of like in my early 20s living in Portland, Oregon, uh, none of them lived a particularly luxurious lifestyle. Most did, however, have family to fall back on for financial assistance or even in some cases a trust fund. So these weren't destitute people, Mm -hmm. but they were only wearing secondhand clothing. Yeah. Uh, And at the same time, to be fair, you can't judge what someone's dealing with when you see them out in in the world. Because many of them were struggling with student loan debt, a lack of good-paying jobs, rising rents, debt from credit cards that, for reasons I cannot understand except for hashtag capitalism, were being handed out like candy to 18-year-olds at college orientation. Like, people might look like they have money when they don't. 
yeah. is another thing to think about. Absolutely. So that brings me to, I'm going to be finaling up my history here, and then we're going to get into debunking some of these myths. An amazing Jezebel piece. It is very long. Set aside at least 15 minutes to read it and then read it again. It's called The Complicated Reality of Thrift Store Gentrification. It's from a few years ago. Um, The whole thing is worth an amazing read. I mean, just so insightful and really gets the wheels turning. Um, But this quote, it's a paragraph, so get ready, everyone, uh, really summarizes a lot of this. The history of wearing secondhand clothing is more complicated than rich kids simply play-acting poverty and marginalized identities, reflecting economic and political anxieties of particular eras. It's hard to not notice parallels between how some anti-consumerist buyers embraced secondhand clothing in the 60s and 70s and why Gen Z gravitates towards thrifting. Fast fashion's ceaseless churn of trends and poor construction ensures that whatever you buy one month will not only be out of style the next year, but likely falling apart in the process. You can opt out of the hegemony and get an arguably better made garment by wading through your local Goodwill. And a greater understanding of global clothing waste also makes shopping for recycled clothes as a starting point far more appealing. So, I mean, we've seen... Time and time again, people thrift shopping because they don't want to participate in capitalism, because they don't have a lot of money, because they just, you know, they think about the the environmental impact of recycling clothing. I think more than ever, we've got all those things happening right now. And we're also like, wow, new clothes are garbage. Yeah, I I mean, I the main reason that I do shop secondhand um, is just because I don't really like the options for new clothes, which is really crazy because we have more options than ever. There is so much out there available to buy. And I just find that most of it doesn't appeal to me. And the stuff that does is like way out of my price range. Yes, I would agree with that. And you know what? I'm going to be really honest. I am a very pro secondhand shopping person. To me, that is the best thing we can do from an environmental perspective. It's the best thing we can do from an ethical perspective. Yep. Because for the vast majority of us, new, ethical, sustainable, long-lasting, good-fitting clothing is not an option. Yeah, absolutely. It's just not there, right? And I would much rather someone go hit up the Goodwill than go place a huge Shein order. Yeah, totally. Okay, so are you ready to bust some myths? I think I'm ready to get into it. Okay, so myth number one, this is the first one I hear from people all the time. Thrift stores are designed to be a resource for low-income people. Yeah, this one, uh, I feel like it sounds so nitpicky to be like, first, let's get into what thrift stores are, you know, (laughs) and like, What's the technical business like model for a thrift store? But I see so many comments from people who are, you know, saying I I feel like it's this this phrase of donating your clothes to charity that has Mm -hmm. just run wild. Um, I feel like that has been repeated so much that people have really, really absorbed that and now think that donating your clothes to a thrift means that you are giving your clothing to someone when that is just really far from how that system actually works. Yes. As we are going to say many, many times, thrift stores are businesses, whether they are a nonprofit or for profit. 
So I thought we would get started. We have an amazing message from Stacy of Rainbow Vintage. I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to share some other thoughts she shared. And then we're going to talk about the thrift industry. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sounds good. All right. So let's take a listen. I've been a vintage clothing dealer for 25 years since I was 20. I started out with a shop, which I closed after two years, but kept selling clothing, mostly at vintage shows across the country. Because I never made much money, I've always had other jobs, but I love it too much to quit. I don't know any vintage dealers who've gotten rich either, although a few have managed to buy a house. I've been sourcing from thrift stores my whole career, albeit less and less, and they are only one of many sources. I did go through a period early in my career when I wondered whether I was taking things that someone else needed. But ultimately, I realized that what I'm selling are not necessities. They're just things people want. No one needs a vintage dress or a vintage anything, so I'm not depriving anyone. These things are luxuries. Even if someone else who loves vintage happened to find it, what are the chances that it's their size and their style and it fits into their existing wardrobe? I was often buying things that had been there long enough to be down to half price and would soon be ragged out, so I think the chances are genuinely pretty slim. I also watched what others were buying and almost never saw anything that I'd have grabbed. Everyone is looking for different stuff. Everyone's taste, size, and needs are different. Thrift stores represent a distribution problem. Ordinarily, as a consumer, you seek the widget. If you need a new garlic press, you go to the store that sells garlic presses and you buy one. If they're out of garlic presses, you come back next week or you go to the other garlic press store. But with thrifting, the widget seeks you because the assortment is totally random. That's why we all have a collection of dumb mugs in our cupboard. You walk into the thrift and find something you've been looking for, or not, and you have essentially zero control over that. Resellers fill in that gap, matching randomly assorted things to specific customers. Thrifts haven't figured out how to do that themselves yet, and I think until they do, if they ever do, resellers will have a role to fill. I get to take things that would very likely go into oblivion and place them with new owners who will enjoy them and care for them and rehome them appropriately when the time comes. I told an acquaintance what I do a couple months ago, and they told me that, quote, resellers buy all the cute clothes and leave nothing for the poor. I'd encountered that opinion on Instagram about a hundred times, but never in person. I kind of laughed and pointed out that resellers couldn't buy all the cute clothes because there's too much. How would they list, store, and sell all of it, even? Clothing is the single most labor-intensive thing to sell online. You have to prep it, wash it, steam it, lint roll it, then you have to photograph it, take measurements, describe every flaw. The only easy part is the shipping. Even if you just auction it all off on whatnot, it's still a lot of labor. I didn't even get into the fact that cute is subjective, or that thrifts are putting out new stuff all day, every day, or the tons that get bailed and shipped overseas. What I wish I'd said is, why do you think that? Where did that idea come from? Because I think that might have gotten them thinking more. I try to engage with the anti-reseller people on Instagram, who often claim that thrift stores exist so that poor people have access to cheap clothing. In the earliest days over a century ago, that actually was part of their purpose, but these days it's absurd. How fucking fucked up is it that people are so beguiled by consumerism that they think it's altruistic to provide special stores for the poor just so they can overconsume at the normal rate? As my friend Elisa put it when that Jezebel article was going around a couple years ago, it seems like thrift stores have more shit than they can sell, and no one has to feel bad about shopping there, even if you're going to resell it. What a killer way to get this episode started. Yeah, right? she touched on so many of the points that I have in my notes. Yeah, yeah, I know. You two are of like the same mind here. <laughs> so, you know, I wondered 
where do people get this idea? Because I this is the one I see thrown out there the most. Yeah. That thrift stores are supposed to be a resource for low-income people. I mean, again, I think it's just the donating clothing to charity thing. I think yeah. that that phrase which I wouldn't be surprised if that phrase is like perpetuated by the thrift store industry. Um, you know, it puts them out as a like a good cause and it makes people feel good and it makes people feel more inclined to give their stuff to them. Um, I feel like we've repeated that so many times that people have just kind of misconstrued what that actually means. Um You know, like you said, at the end of the day, they're a business. And Mm -hmm. while there are thrift chains that do hold nonprofit status, there are a lot that are just fully for-profit companies. And the ones that are nonprofits, the philanthropic goals of the stores are completely unrelated to the actual items that they're selling. So, you know, most thrift stores will support things like shelters, um, aid organizations. Um, I think Salvation Army is like the evangelical church, um, (laughs) which they say very loudly and proudly on all of their like online Mm -hmm. platforms. Um, They also sometimes like provide programs like job placement or career advancement. And so the products that are available to buy in the store are not in themselves the charitable charitable Mm -hmm. aspect it's the profits made through the sale of the products so i just feel like people get that a little bit mixed up yes and i mean it's a means to an end exactly and so technically if you are donating your things to a thrift store for the purpose of supporting charity um you know i don't know that i necessarily believe in a lot of the charitable components of the larger chains however there are smaller independent thrift stores um a lot of them support like dv shelters or animal shelters that probably are doing good in their community um if you want to donate to these places in you know, and that's your way of trying to help them, to support them, then technically you should want as many things as possible to sell for as much money as possible. Because yeah. that that is, that's the, that's the philanthropy there, is them selling product and then using the money to support this cause. Yes. Okay, so I have another, this is a little bit more like, I don't know, like a squishier reason why I also think that people think that thrift stores are a resource for low-income people. And it is because of the highly still prevalent social stigma that things that are used are for poor people. Yeah, absolutely. And they're undesirable and that they lose their appeal and their value the moment they're used. And I still see this conversation coming up on social media all the time. And we're gonna, this is something we're going to get to in a little bit, but like, you know, around the raised prices at thrift stores right now, how the pr- prices have been going up for a few years. And it will be like, look, someone seriously posted a couple weeks ago on one of my posts, $6 for a shirt. That's crazy. And I was like, $6 for a shirt is pretty cheap. Our, um, so, our perception of the yes. value of clothing is so warped. So warped. It's and then on top of that. So off. It's like, oh, and it's secondhand, ew. And I do, I mean, I, when I started thrift shopping in high school, people would be like, what are you, poor? And I'd be like, yeah, actually I am. Um, But I also like have a great sense of style, you know? Yeah. And 
I know that that stigma is still there. We're still working to destigmatize that. I can assure you that for every one of us who is like, why wouldn't you wear secondhand clothes? There are 10 other people who are concerned that you get bed bugs or look gross wearing secondhand clothing, Mm -hmm. right? We're still getting there. But I think that perhaps even within our community, there is a little bit of unconscious stigma that secondhand stuff has no value and therefore it should be for poor people. And I think that's something for all of us to unpack as well. So Stacey had a few more thoughts just I wanted to share on this topic. Uh, She said, uh, thrift stores exist to raise money, whether for charity or for profit, which we already touched on. I often see claims that the purpose is to allow poor people to buy things cheaply, but A, there are tons of other ways to get things cheap or free. Garage sales, rummage sales, free cycle, buy nothing groups, Craigslist, Facebook marketplace, mutual aid groups, just asking around, swaps, on and on and on. Why would it be necessary to open an entire store just for the purpose of selling things cheaply? And I did like what she mentioned about like how we think that there needs to be a thrift store where poor people can go overconsume too. You know? <laughs> like I, I was like, yeah, I get that because I think that for some people who, you know, For a lot of people, I guess I would say, when they struggle with, like, how, say, cheap Shein is versus, like, I don't know, some, like, quote-unquote ethical brand, what they really see is the big gap there is that, like, for the price of one thing from one of those brands, you could buy 20 things from Shein. And why wouldn't you want 20 Instead of one, mm-hmm. right? You can overconsume secondhand clothing as well. Absolutely. Uh, but I think that's another thing that we all really need to work. I mean, that's what I'm actively working on all the time is breaking that part of my brain. I don't want it in there anymore. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, next, Stacy said, why would any group like a church open a thrift when there's already another in the community? Fair. Why aren't thrift shops cheaper then? And why do they raise their prices? Wouldn't they be competitive with dollar stores and Walmart if affordability was their mission? Yep. Agreed. It's not. (laughs) And the next question, which is the big one, why charge money at all? Why not just give the stuff to the needy? Some thrifts do, of course, but it's not their main mission. And I never see people bring this up. Why wouldn't they at least give them first pick? 100% agree. Why go through the whole ceremony of a store? Yeah. And I mean, there are places that you can donate your things directly to if you are looking to rehome your clothing to people that need them, um, then the thrift store is not the right place. Yeah. There are shelters that accept donations. They usually have very specific lists for the specific items that people are looking for. Um, And then there's also organizations that like match – like formal wear, prom dresses of people who can't afford them, or they give people like professional clothing for interviews. So there are groups out there that probably do want the stuff that you need that are giving them directly to people. It's just not the thrift store. Yeah. Yeah. If if your end goal as a person donating your clothing is that like, I want this to be on someone else's body in my community, then you need to be donating to something that isn't a thrift store. Yes. Period. Yep. Um, And the last thing that Stacey called out is thrift stores would close if only people too poor to buy new stuff shopped there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I do think that you're right that there is also this, like, illusion that we're all doing this charitable deed by donating our stuff. Um, And that benefits the thrift stores who, once again, their goal is to sell as much stuff as possible, to raise money for whatever it is they're raising money for, 
even if that's just for shareholders or the owner of the company, right? Absolutely. So I wanted to call out that there are a lot of for-profit thrift companies in here, and I have shopped at many of them. Uh, America's Thrift Store, which has 21 locations in the South. Family Thrift Center, 40 stores in Texas and Arizona. have totally been to them. Red, White, and Blue Thrift Stores. They have 22 stores kind of scattered across the country, including one outside of Portland, Oregon, which used to be a really great place to score stuff. It was cash only. Um, Savers slash TVI Inc. slash Value Village, mm-hmm. which has 295 stores in the U.S., Canada, and Australia. It is the largest for-profit thrift store chain in the world with revenue estimated at $3 billion per year. Yep. Um, most of their inventory they get for free through donations, but they also buy inventory Um from Goodwill, from other so-called textile recycling companies. But nonetheless, there's a lot of profit being made right there. Um, Texas Thrift, which we have here in Austin, and I'm actually a huge fan of Texas Thrift in terms of like, if you have something specific in mind that you are looking for, they will probably have it because it's so much high volume. I would say that they probably buy like 90% of their inventory. Um, and I'll also just call out Thread Up is essentially a thrift store online mm-hmm. that is definitely for profit. And Goodwill is nonprofit. And we talked about Goodwill many times here on Close Horse. Yes. Uh, in 2022, Goodwill did $7.4 billion in revenue. It is technically a nonprofit, but it does all the grossest things you can do. Uh, it pays huge bonuses to its executives. It's gone to court over this, actually. Uh, it pays workers with disabilities below the minimum wage. It takes money from the U.S. government to fund the programs that ostensibly your purchases are funding. And it lobbies super duper hard, like in, as in spends money lobbying against raising the minimum wage. Yep. They're, they're, I mean, Goodwill is like the low rung for me in terms of thrifting. Like I try to avoid. At the end of the, the day, all thrift stores benefit from selling stuff. Mm-hmm. That's the business model. They are stores. And whether they're for profit or not, the goal is to make as much money as possible. Should thrift stores give back to the community more, especially since they receive most of their inventory for free? Probably. Sure. I agree. Figure something out. These companies, we should be holding them accountable to give back more of that stuff in their community or use more of that money within their community. Mm -hmm. I just want to know who's ready to go tell them that because it's not going to change if we're not all involved in pushing for that. Yeah, that's so true. Okay. So now we have another message This one is from Claire, who goes by Thrifted by Claire on social media. My name is Claire, and I'm a part-time reseller based in San Diego, California. You can find me on Instagram at Poshmark at Thrifted by Claire. I got started reselling in the fall of 2020 as an at-home pandemic activity I could do on the side of my full-time job in sales. I grew up thrifting from a young age and knew I was able to find really great items secondhand for myself and realized that some of the items I was finding I could turn a profit on. I used YouTube to learn everything I needed to know to start selling on Poshmark and later other platforms. Reselling is primarily a hobby that pays me to do something I love thrifting. I would not say that my reselling business makes me a ton of extra money, especially after cost of goods and labor, probably a few hundred bucks a month. So nowhere close to a living wage, but it's a nice supplement since I'm still early in my career and the cost of living in San Diego is quite high. 
I get really frustrated when I see people commenting on how resellers are stealing from the poor. First of all, thrift stores are not government entitlements or benefits exclusively for the needy. There are no rules about needing to be below the poverty line to shop there. I buy all my clothes this way to shop sustainably and save money. And besides, most people can find better deals at retail at stores like Ross and Kohl's. While some thrift stores are nonprofits and earn money for a cause, many are for-profit institutions like Savers, for example. They're not much better than a reseller trying to turn a profit. Even nonprofits like Goodwill pay north of $500,000 a year to their CEO. And all this is to say that these stores want to make money. They do so by selling as many items as they can that get donated to them as possible. Often there's just too many items that they cannot possibly put them all out in the store and they're forced to turn them to the dump. Some people might be familiar with the Goodwill outlet or bins, which does this. A thrift store I visit often actually runs flash sales pretty frequently because they simply don't have enough hangers or space available to put donations out that they have in the back. They also sometimes have to pass on items because they can't fit them all in the store. Basically, there's just so much discarded clothing that resellers seriously do stores a solid by buying lots of items. If someone in need is shopping at a store, I don't think they really need to be worried about a reseller taking all the good items. More often than not, I leave behind tons of great items because they aren't priced exactly where I'd like to turn a profit, especially as a part-time reseller. has to be worth my time. Also, there's many options that are constantly being replenished. So if you're looking for a pair of black jeans, I assure you there's probably like 20 plus different options there. While I'd love to be at a thrift store every day, I simply don't have the time or the funds to clear out the thrift store of every great item I find. I really do think resellers offer a number of wonderful benefits to our community. Firstly, they support local charity shops and nonprofit businesses by purchasing there so frequently. They repair and clean pre-loved items so that they can continue to be worn. They make one-of-a-kind and desirable secondhand items accessible for a larger audience online, oftentimes at a much better price than you would find at the retail store or even on sale at a retail store. They also store a portion of the excess unwanted clothing in the world until they find a new home. And most of all, we're running small businesses. We're patronizing small and local businesses, using services like storage facilities. Some resellers hire employees. All resellers are buying sorts of supplies for shipping, cleaning, photography, mannequins, hangers, you name it. What I really loved about Claire's message, uh, which honestly set some thoughts in motion for me was about how reselling secondhand, it's all part of this slower economy that we need. And I see resellers being a really important part of that because they do support local businesses. Mm -hmm. They are small businesses in their own, uh, in their own way. They create jobs. Yeah. Um, They do they do have this impact that, you know, sure, is it is the impact as big as, say, Amazon has in a bad way? No, but with many, many, many people sharing and selling secondhand clothes, reusing, rewearing, we do see a large impact. Yeah, definitely. Um, so just I really, I really liked that message. Do you have any other thoughts, anything else you want to add about debunking myth number one? I think that pretty much covers it. Like I said, it feels like nitpicky to get into the technicalities, but I just have seen so many people complaining that, you know, when people donate stuff, like they're not trying to give it to resellers or that that's not like what they have in mind. 
Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then, you know, the, the thrift store is just not the right place to go. <laughs> that's right. If that's not what you want yeah. to happen with your stuff, there are other places to rehome it. It will take more work. It's probably a better path for you, actually, Absolutely. to ensure maximum use. You know, it's it's more mindful rehoming, right, which we talk about a lot here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you, based on conversations I've had with people in my life who work in thrift stores as sorters or or have at some point, the vast majority of people who show up with stuff at the Goodwill or any other thrift store are not there in hopes of doing some good deed for the world. They are there because they want to get rid of their stuff as easily as possible. Yeah. And I think that's another <laughs> issue is that I think a lot of the stuff that people are donating is not what people need. Yeah. Um, you know, again, if you look into the list that your local shelters have, they are looking for specific items. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very little overlap on those lists with the things that resellers are looking for. Um, so yeah, there are definitely tons of resources out there for you to go to if you are looking to rehome your clothing in a very intentional way. Um, otherwise, when you drop your stuff off at the thrift, you are really leaving it in the hands of whoever picks it up there and you know your stuff could go straight into the garbage yeah that's and the reality of dropping, yeah that's yeah. the reality of dropping it off at the thrift store like you are just saying i'm leaving it here and whatever happens happens and you can't you know you don't can't be upset about where it goes no no i mean ultimately in this day and age thrift stores are really doing a service of disposal for you mm-hmm. and getting it out of your life in one stop oh yeah and that's definitely something we're gonna get into a little yes. bit later let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep clothes horse going via their generous patreon support Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro business. She's the one woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella 
Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Fagavon Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. Let's move on to myth number two. Yes. Another personal fave of mine. Mm -hmm. 
resellers are making tons of money, just tons, Mm -hmm. from taking things that should be for low-income people. Yes. The phrase I always see is resellers are making bank. I don't know what it is, but that specific (laughs) thing I always see, and it always makes me laugh because I'm like, where are these resellers that are making bank? And are they like open to consulting? Like, can they can they chat with me? Because I would really love to know what they're doing to be making so much money because I feel like I really enjoy what I do and I think I'm pretty good at it. I have like a very solid customer base, but I am certainly not rolling in money over here by any um, means. I would say like 99% of the resellers and vintage sellers that I know also work a full-time job. Yes. Um, are hobbling together all kinds of jobs mm-hmm. to stay afloat. Yep. None of them are making bank. And I will tell you all, as someone who is a consultant, who also teaches classes to small business owners, so many people, regular basis, I hear from them who are resellers, who are not paying themselves, who just can't get by, who don't understand where it's going wrong. And certainly none of them are like making six figures or whatever nonsense I hear being thrown out there. No, and I think that the very, very small percentage of resellers that are, you know, making like what would be considered quite a lot of money are people who are in very specific specialty facets of resale. Mm -hmm. So there are people who deal specifically in high-end, designer, antique, And that requires, like, very special skill sets. Um, Mm -hmm. That stuff does Mm -hmm. not come from the thrift store. That, Mm -hmm. you know, it requires special laundering. It requires a lot of research, knowledge, mending. Even packing and shipping is different when you're dealing with, like, vintage couture than regular clothing. So, Mm -hmm. you know, sure, some people are making plenty of money off of resale, but that's not like the average reseller that's a very specific highly skilled group of people that are working in a very niche corner of this market yeah can i tell you who's really making money off of resale oh i've got three names for Mm -hmm. you okay okay i'm ready number one one is poshmark yep who made 350 million dollars in revenue last year now that's before expenses that's not their profit but that was how much sales Mm -hmm. came out of poshmark yep oh no i'm sorry that's not even sales that's how much Poshmark made in fees yes. from people selling on their platform. Yep. Remember, Poshmark didn't source or sell anything. They don't they do it. Like, they don't do any of the they are just a platform. They're just a middleman. Right. They I don't, mean, they're making a cut. They don't right? touch the inventory. They don't do any of the communications with buyers and sellers. They don't do the shipping. Nope. They don't fret about things. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So Poshmark, $350 million. Number two, Depop who made $552 million last year. Mm-hmm. Once again, Depop doesn't sell anything. Yep. Right? Just the middleman. And then this one really shocked me, but I think it's because this is a more global resale platform. Mercari, $1.2 billion wow. in revenue last year. That's crazy. Yeah. Once again, not they don't sell anything. Yeah. People sell the things, Right. right? Um, they sure, yeah, they provide a platform. There are systems in place that make it easier to reach customers, blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, they 
are making a ton of money off of resale. And all of these websites, all of these apps, they use a lot of fast fashion tricks to get customers to overconsume. Absolutely. I feel like I'm constantly getting a push notification from one of these apps, like every 15 minutes. Oh, I get these weird emails from Poshmark where like, they know what I like. And they'll uh-huh. be like, we just selected, we handpicked all of these vintage trench coats for you. And I'm like, <laughs> leave me alone. I have a trench coat problem. You guys don't need to send me these emails. It feels so mean and targeted. Don't tempt me. But they do it on purpose, obviously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I have no doubt that they're also selling all of our data. Oh, Because yeah. they're like, oh, it seems like people are really into buying trench coats who mm-hmm. live in New York City. Yep. You know, like, trust me, they are making bank off of the world of resale. Unlike all the individual sellers, not so much. Yes. And that's also a big part of the cost of people who use reselling platforms is that basically no matter what method you use for resale, you know, a cut of that is going to whatever platform you're using. So, you know, when people are upset about prices, like, well, if the fees were lower, people could price Mm -hmm. lower. But that never seems to be part of the conversation. No one seems upset about the 30% or whatever that Poshmark is taking. And the other thing is, anytime you buy anything on one of these platforms and you get free shipping, Mm -hmm. the person who sold you the thing is paying for the shipping. Yes. It's not Poshmark. It's not Depop. It's not Mercari. It's the person who sold you the thing. Yeah. Poshmark does this weird thing where they like – they incentivize you to send people offers and they have they basically have these built-in like preset offers where you can select from a few different options and they give you different options of quote-unquote discounted shipping and it's just you it comes out of the amount that you get to keep so if you offer someone this deal plus free shipping then you just make $8 less because you're paying for the shipping. But then it like words it in a way that's supposed to tempt the customer to do it. It's, it's all very weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very confusing for the customer. It definitely makes the customer think that Poshmark is giving them the free shipping. Yeah. Nope. Or the discount. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know. I know. Um, And that's, that's great because the less you care about the person selling you the thing, the harder the bargain you're going to drive. And it all works for Poshmark, who gets paid no matter what at the end of the day. So, you know, I I think it's really important for us to remember that, yeah, there are people making money off of, of resale. It's not the people who you think it is. Absolutely. And I think also that this idea operates under the assumption that resellers aren't low-income people themselves. Um, there are plenty of people in resale, like you said, that work many different jobs and, you know, really use resale as a way to get by. And there are also a lot of reasons that people choose resale that prevent them from working in like more traditional career fields. Mm -hmm. Um, resale is a huge resource for people who have different types of disabilities or mental health issues, mobility issues, or if they're caretaking for children, family members. Um, there are so many different reasons that people may not be able to like you know get a quote-unquote like more traditional job and reselling is a really amazing opportunity for them so it feels weird to villainize resellers as taking something away from people who need it when in fact a lot of resellers need that in order to survive yeah like once again people are not getting rich from resale no people are not even getting to be middle class off of resale 
Sure. Yeah, there are people, as as Alex mentioned, there are people who are selling higher-end stuff or in a specific niche or are turning so much product uh, that they they can make a living like that. But no one's making money without a lot of hard work here, Yeah. no matter how much the money is. Absolutely. So I have a few quotes here from different members of the community. And now when I asked for feedback, experiences, thoughts, all of that, uh, I asked for it in three different categories. One was from people who are actually resellers, mm-hmm. who we're going to hear from uh, in this next few quotes I'm going to read. Uh, people who rely on resellers because they want to shop secondhand, but maybe don't have access or other barriers. And three... Uh, people who work in thrift stores or have worked in thrift stores. So we've got a lot of great stuff coming. I wanted to just get information and experiences from every realm of this world. Yeah, I think it's so important too, because I know that a lot of times like people don't necessarily want to hear from the perspective of resellers because it feels like I'm just defending my own business. Yeah, Um, yeah. People are like, yeah, obviously you're going to say it's fine because you're making money off of it, which like, I suppose is fair to an extent, but um, yeah, I think it's just really good to have outside perspectives as well to really just get a feel for how like rounded this issue is. Yeah. So we have a lot of, I mean, man, I got to tell you, I, I, we received so so many messages that obviously not everybody's stuff is going to be in these two episodes because I would just be reading for hours and hours and no one wants to hear that. But I saw so many just like great pictures emerging so many themes and I read every single message at least once if not two or three times as I tried to pull all these together and I just I don't know I the community that exists around Close Horse is just so strong and so thoughtful and actually does come to the table with a lot of nuance around these things yeah absolutely so first off we have Sarah who is a reseller She said, I was an elementary school teacher for almost 10 years when I had my first child, who is now five. I decided to take a year off, and I had dabbled in selling a few items of my own from my personal collection, and I just started listing more and more items. It is now five and a half years later, and I am a full-time reseller with 1,700 active listings who is selling anywhere from 50 to 100 items a week and making more money than I did teaching. It's exciting for me, but it's also sad. We live in a country where I can make more money staying home than teaching little kids. I struggle with guilt constantly as I know my value as a teacher, but for now with my family and being able to stay home, reselling is a gift. I source the majority of my items from the Goodwill bins where everything is $1.29 a pound. The amount of items brand new with tags is astonishing and scary. People buy, buy, buy with no intent, it seems. Wow, that is, it's really disturbing that teachers are paid so little. I know. Teachers are paid very little. Um, I also just thought it was a good call out here that most of the people I know who work in resale don't actually like go to the thrift store that often. They will go to the bins or estate sales or other, they buy lots from, you know, rag yards and things like that. So yeah, I think I've only maybe gone like I don't know, two times since the year started, Yeah, personally. Um, yeah, this is interesting. Also, Sarah says that she has 1,700 active listings. That is Oof. so many listings. Um, so much work. I think it's really hard for people to kind of get a grasp of what that looks like, but that means that she has 1,700 items for sale in her home that she somehow processed, sorted, organized, 
And, you know, she has to store them somewhere. When someone makes an order, she has to be able to find the item that someone ordered out of all of those things. Um, <sighs> that is a lot of work. I feel like I'm, like, drowning in inventory, and I have nowhere near that much stuff. I mean, I'll just think about all the laundry and photos and measuring and copy and organizing and shipping and... It makes me tired. And that's on top of, like, her personal stuff, her children's stuff, um, any other family members she has at home. You know, it's – that's yeah. – yeah, that's a lot of work. It's hard work. Yeah. It's hard work. Absolutely. And I say that again, that nobody is getting rich quick off of resale, and nobody's making a living off of resale without a lot of hard work. Yeah. Okay, so next we have Catherine. Catherine said, I studied fashion design and worked in the apparel industry for seven years in product development and sourcing. During that time, I became very troubled with the waste, pollution, and labor abuses propagated by the by my industry. I left my full-time position and enrolled in grad school full-time to study textiles. In order to earn extra income during that time, I decided to sell some of my own clothes on Poshmark. I was surprised at how successful I was and decided to pursue reselling part-time. Now, I typically source my items from thrift stores and estate sales, so it's not easy money, and I'm not going to get rich off of it. It requires a lot of self-discipline to continue sourcing and listing on a regular basis, but I do feel it's a livable wage when breaking it down to an hourly level. Financially, I would have been better off to pursue my career in a corporate role, but I have decided for personal and ethical reasons to not pursue that right now. I've come to know many other resellers since I've started my business. Most are really good people that are looking to support themselves and their family, not trying to rip people off. Reselling is a business that is accessible to many people who may struggle in a corporate or retail environment. It provides a viable economic opportunity for those that have significant family responsibilities, health issues or disabilities, or a lack of formal education. Mm -hmm. It's so true. I mean, it's just, you know, I I think I'll... I, I think that uh, specifically Poshmark has over the years sort of sold resell in a very like MLM-y kind of way. Mm -hmm. Like you can work from home and be with your family and get super rich, right? Um, they never mind the gazillions of hours of work you're going to have to do. And so probably that kind of messaging doesn't help uh, with this argument that or it does help, I guess, the argument that people are getting super rich off of resale. Right. But I do think. That whereas all of those failed MLMs like LuLaRoe or whatever other cosmetics and stuff have been forced on women who have families to support to sell mm -hmm. as a way of both caring for their families and making money, those things failed. But resale does work in that it's a viable, honest living, mm -hmm. you know? But it is so much more work than I think anyone thinks. Like, you don't just, like, roll up to the Goodwill, dump a bunch of stuff in your trunk— Go home real quick, list it on Poshmark, and call it a day. Like, it's just not how it works. I wish it and was. And I'm not a retailer. <laughs> I know. I'm like, that sounds really easy and nice. Yeah, yeah. That is yeah. not the case. It's not the case. It is hard-earned money. Um, Amanda, not myself, but another Amanda says, I've worked retail and seen firsthand all the product going to the landfill. I've tried to change the culture in my store with little success. I'm currently a reseller on multiple platforms. I don't make much money, but I save some things from the landfill. As a disabled human, it's what I can do. I work hard to learn proper techniques to restore, repair, and clean items to resell. I literally dig through the crap of the Seattle Goodwill outlet, otherwise known as the bins, to save things. I bring them home and wash them to see if they're salvageable. 
We are a society of people with excess money and excess goods. We do not care about recycling, reusing, or conserving. It seems like my small contribution to society is more than any sort of get-rich-quick scheme. And I, I like that. I think that a lot of people are like, this is hard work. You know, I do it because I care about it, but because I also gives me an opportunity to make an income. Yeah. And I think that another interesting thing that this touches on is that um, similar to what Amanda said about having a disability and um, let's see, Sarah, um, who has her family that she needs to stay home with, um, their resale is also such a huge resource for people who experience those same issues on the buying end. So there are so many people who can't thrift for themselves or they don't have access to thrift stores. Mm-hmm. And the only way that they can shop secondhand is via resellers. So I feel like that makes this idea of taking away resources from people who need them to be even more disingenuous because then you're completely disregarding the people who rely on the secondhand space in the same way that other people rely on thrift stores. You're basically saying that like, I care about and want to defend the underprivileged people that need the thrift store, but then you don't care about the people who you need like online secondhand. I think a lot about how you know, I have issues with the way the the big platforms are run. Mm-hmm. And I do think that they are not very fair to the sellers yeah, themselves. Absolutely. Um, they're certainly very accessible and easy for the buyers, right? But I am glad that they exist because what we have to realize is like people have been struggling economically for decades, mm-hmm. for as long as there have been humans really, but especially I mean, we just walked through it. It started in the 70s, right? And yeah. it's been getting worse every decade. And in the past, if you were really struggling financially, what could you do? You could get a second job, maybe. Uh, good luck if you have kids or health issues that prevent you from being able to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you could sell Tupperware or something odd like that that was probably super predatory as well. Uh, I had a friend whose family needed extra money, and her mom would do this thing where they would send like a huge box of all these little tiny things that needed to be assembled and the whole family would do it all weekend long. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that was like weird work from home thing you could do, right? Right. Um, There weren't a lot of jobs you could do from home and there weren't a lot of jobs you could do if you didn't have the option of working outside the house, period. Mm -hmm. Like if you weren't a good fit for corporate culture, which many of us are not, right? Now more than ever, there is this other option there that it can be your full income or help you cover your bills because we know that wages out there are not doing that job on their own. And if you only work one job and are doing well financially, you're a really lucky person. Yeah, absolutely. Because that is just not the world we live in right now. And so once again, like, I hate, I mean, I hate, that's a strong word, but I really feel it. I hate that there's so much vitriol directed towards people who are just trying to live and participate in this world and support themselves in a way that isn't totally gross and, you know, exploitive. And again, <laughs> I, I do think that it is providing a service for people who do need it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who live in very rural areas, people who don't have any access to reliable transportation, or people who are working multiple jobs during the only hours that the thrift stores are open. Like, not everyone can go thrifting. There are a lot of people out there who cannot go to the thrift store for a multitude of reasons. And I think that it seems really unfair to say that resellers are the villain. They're taking everything out of the thrift store, but then what? Like, the people who can't go to the thrift store, like, oh, well, they just don't get to shop secondhand then. Or they only shop secondhand through, what, corporations? Like, like what, the, thread up? Yeah, like, I'm like, the, I don't like those. Those options don't seem good. Like, the current system we have is providing jobs for people reselling, and then it's also giving people alternate means to be part of the secondhand economy. Yeah, yeah. I... You know, I'm glad that you touched on this and we're going to get to a little bit more later that the current resale climate, specifically these online platforms, allows people to have access to secondhand clothing who normally don't have access to thrifting. Right. And I did a post about that a few months ago, just like really untangling the privilege of thrifting because I was tired of people showing up and being like, I don't know what is wrong with people who don't shop secondhand or who don't go to thrift stores. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me tell you all the reasons I haven't been able to thrift in the past, right? And someone showed up in the comments on that post and just would like, I think sometimes you, your brain gets into a situation where you're like fighting for this belief of yours and you just get backed into a corner that you can't get out of. Uh, but this person was just like, I refuse to accept. There's no one who doesn't have access to thrifting. Thrifting isn't a privilege for anyone. That's just blah, not blah, blah, true. Blah. And I was like, oh my God. I mean- like, stop it. Like you, do you have a car? Do you have time? Do you have small children? You might not be able to go. Do you have health issues? There are so many different reasons that you could not, you know, are not able to thrift. And also, there are people who don't like it, which is also fair. Like, Mm -hmm. some people don't want to go to the thrift store. They don't like it. They don't enjoy it. Some people have a really hard time looking at something on a rack and, you know, kind of envisioning what it might look like or how it might fit on someone. And a lot of thrift stores don't have fitting rooms or people don't feel comfortable using them. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so, like, what, all of those people just, like, too bad for you? You don't get to shop secondhand? Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Here's something that I see coming up all the time. Um, It's this argument that if you're shopping at a thrift store and you're not poor, then you shouldn't be shopping there. Oh, I've seen this too. But we also don't want people to resell stuff online, mm-hmm. right? So explain to me, are we saying that unless you are very poor, you should be buying fast fashion? Because those are kind of our options here. Yeah. You can shop secondhand, which would mean either going to thrift stores or buying from resellers online, or you can go buy something from Zara or Shein or H&M or any, Madewell or go up the go up the ladder in pricing. It's all made with the same exploitive model, right? Right. No matter what, if you're going out, if you're saying, oh, you don't get to participate in secondhand because you're, quote, rich or whatever it is, uh, then I guess you just have to buy brand new stuff. What then? So you don't care about the planet at all. Right. And you don't care about all the workers making all that stuff. Right. Another point that someone mentioned earlier in one of the audio essays was that these thrift stores wouldn't be able to sustain business if that were the case. If resellers were banned and there was some sort of like income threshold for who was allowed to shop there, or even if people were like, oh, you know, it's the ethical thing for me not to shop there because I can afford not to, the thrift stores would close. Like they, you know, 
low-income people, again, they're low-income. They cannot afford to go in there and buy tons and tons of product and spend tons and tons of money. These are businesses. They wouldn't stay open. Yeah. So then what? Yeah. Then thrifting for nobody. No one gets thrifting to thrift. for no one, right? Yeah, and like, then everything goes to landfill. I right. Guess. Like why? Why? I just that just doesn't. Why is that the option? Yeah. Exactly. You know, something a phenomenon I noticed because I read so many, so many pieces across the internet from college newspapers, local papers, personal blogs, you know, Substacks, you name it. I wanted to understand every argument against reselling Mm -hmm. and against thrifting and everything else. I just wanted to know what everybody was saying. And I was, I was telling Dustin, I was like, yeah, I noticed this phenomenon, like 10 articles in that it was basically like, I could identify the financial class, the economic class of the person writing the piece Mm. based on who they were scapegoating for ruining thrifting. Interesting. So if you said it was middle-class people ruining it, then I knew that you probably were lower middle class or, you know, like a a lower economic class, Mm -hmm. right? Lower income. If you said it was upper middle class people, which I saw a lot, I was like, oh, so you're middle class. Okay, check, check. If I saw one percenters, another one I saw thrown around, I was like, okay, so you like, do you have a trust fund? Like, how rich are you? You know? And it just was so funny to me. It was like, someone has to be scapegoated, right? But it has to be someone who has more money than me. And I'm going to be really honest with all of you, probably no one who was upper middle class or wealthier is buying from resellers online or at the thrift store because they are probably, if they are buying secondhand clothes, they are buying very high-end expensive pieces. Yeah. You know, they're going after like vintage Chanel. They're not fighting with you over a pair of Madewell jeans. Yeah, no, those people are buying via the real real or first dibs or yeah i have friends who you know do styling or like interior decor with very very affluent clients and those people do not want stuff from the thrift store no no they don't even want stuff from like a flea market or an estate sale like they yeah they they have something very specific in mind and it is something that none of us can afford (laughs) One time Dustin and I did roll up to a thrift store back in Pennsylvania and there was a lavender limousine in the parking lot and we were cracking up so hard. I was like, why do rich people have to ruin everything? But it was like a really beat up old limo that someone was driving as a car and clearly painted lavender. Love that. It was a pretty, pretty funny moment for us because, you know, yeah, you're not going to see one percenters at, the, at the Goodwill. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. 
Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. 
responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. I just want to thank Alex now, and I will thank her like 50 more times for spending almost four hours recording with me. She's always a favorite guest because she's so prepared and so thoughtful. I'm very grateful for her time, expertise, and research, and I hope you are too. You can also find her on Instagram as at where underscore saint dot evens and check out her shop at wherestaintevens.com. And don't worry, I'll share all of that in the show notes. Also, I want to thank everyone who contributed to this episode. Stacy, Mags, Claire, Sarah, Catherine, and Amanda. If you have thoughts regarding the topics we discussed this week, send them my way via email. Remember, DMs will be turned off at amanda at closehorse.world. Bonus points if you record an audio message. We'll be back next week with part two of this series when we will dig into two more myths. Resellers are taking all of the good stuff and resellers are responsible for rising prices at thrift stores. And I'll be talking about the economics of resale as in what you're paying for when you buy from a reseller. I also want to call out that over at The Department, my other podcast, we are working on a series of episodes that pair with this series. It's all about the history of secondhand shopping as a retail, social, and fashion trend. And spoiler alert, shopping secondhand as a mainstream trend is nothing new. Part two will be coming on Tuesday, April 4th, and part one is already there for the listening. I'll share a link in the show notes. That's all I have for this week. Thank you for listening to another or perhaps even your first episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. But most importantly, tell a friend. Close Horse is built upon people telling other people to check it out. And that's how we get more and more people to think about the things we're working on here. If you'd like to support my work financially, you can learn more at patreon.com slash podcast. I did some calculations and it turns out this year, uh, it's going to cost about $10,000 to produce Close Horse. That doesn't include my work. Um, if I got paid minimum wage for the hours I put into Close Horse, we would be looking at more like $40,000. Um, right now, we don't even come close to covering any of that. So if you like what you hear here and you would like to hear more of it in the future um, and support what I'm doing here, please, once again, consider Patreon or there are other options in my Instagram link tree. I would like to thank, as always, my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. And I will see you all next week. Bye. Bye.